I invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to three books. We'll go in sequence as they are written. The book of Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Kids, don't worry. I'm not going to read all three books at one go. Uh, this is an introduction to these three prophets. I was in the book of Proverbs starting in April. I'm going to take a little break after five, a little over five months there. It goes quickly. Spend some time in these three um, prophecies given, one, to Nineveh, two, to the southern kingdom that we call Judah just prior to Babylonian exile in 586 B.C. I think the message of these prophets is quite timely. It's the word of God. It's always on time, as it were. Uh, but in terms of our current estate of worldliness, uh, it is helpful to understand that all men are in covenant with God, both as groups and individuals, and that all men, simply by right of being made by God, are called to keep covenant with God. And so, there are three texts that I want to read this evening from the three books, just a handful of verses, and then I'm going to talk about the themes of each of these, and then beginning next week we'll move systematically, expositorily through these three prophecies. The first text, Nahum chapter 1. Did you find it already? Is that enough time? Uh, in my Bible survey class this year, we're doing sword drills. And I have come to the conclusion that our young people are very unfamiliar with a book that has pages that you have to turn to and not go, you know, that kind of Bible. Uh, and it's astounding to see even on Monday morning, I said, let's go to the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7. And one of the kids says, there's a Nahum? There's a Nahum. He's there. Nahum, chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. I'll read just two verses there. Then we'll go to Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. These will be easy to find because you're just turning a couple of pages at a time. And then we'll go to Zephaniah, chapter 3, after all of that. What I want to do tonight is develop the themes from these prophets and then also the lessons from these prophets. So let's look at Nahum chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies." And then Habakkuk chapter 2, I'll actually read verses 2 through 4. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Perhaps a little glimpse of why you can see I've turned to these prophets. And then Zephaniah, especially in the light of this morning, Zephaniah chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then verses 16 through 17. You'll recognize the language of 16 and 17 because it is often a portion of our assurance of pardon. 
Zephaniah chapter 1. Now, Zephaniah is writing to Jerusalem, to the inhabitants of the southern kingdom. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. And then here at the end, a reminder of what Christ will bring in that day, in that day of redemption. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion, which is the heavenly name for the city of God, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This far the reading of God's word. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, our desire is that we might not stand afar off from these ancient passages written many hundreds, thousands of years ago but that we might see them as given by you and so fresh and needed and good for us, that we might turn to your word, that we might understand it and so be transformed by it, that we might not only be hearers of the word, but that we might be doers of it, that we might put our trust in you, that you might delight in us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So, one of the primary reasons for choosing these three books is, in particular, uh, Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, though Nahum is writing uh, to the nation of Assyria in the city of Nineveh, is that Habakkuk and Zephaniah were also writing to a great city that possessed even greater glory in history, Nineveh. You'll remember, perhaps, was the city that Jonah was called to, but was reluctant to go out of his pride and his lack of desire to see a foreign nation receive the mercy of God. And so he ran the other way from the city of Nineveh. God called him back. He pursued him with a storm. Jonah jumped into the ocean. He was swallowed by a great fish. There in the belly of the fish, he cried out in repentance. He was spat out of the fish, and then he went to Nineveh. He preached. God showed them mercy, and then Jonah whined about it. Jonah captures the heart of Israel in relationship to their not really wanting God to show mercy to wicked people. It's telling. It is telling. Now, this was a hundred years before the writing of Nahum. Nahum was called to go to that city of Nineveh because they had repented of their repentance. They had gone back to their pagan idolatry. And so God sent Nahum to Nineveh, as it were, to write to Nineveh and to say, look, 
we're done. This sin that you are committing, God has a lot of strong language for it, and we will go into that as we go into the book of Nahum. But one of the themes that we find as it relates to the book of Nahum is either you keep covenant with God or you experience judgment. And of course, the same is true of Jerusalem. And so this evening, as we're going into this newer series, this new series, I want to talk about two points, two headings, and then some things underneath those headings. The first, themes in these prophets. I know, very original. Themes in these prophets, and then lessons in these prophets. Let's look at some of the themes. Now, I am happy to send to you my notes. I have a number of scripture references, and when I got done with all of this, I had a very lengthy outline. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list those themes, and the ones that I think are super important, I'm going to quote from the prophets so that you can see how they are captured within the text. I'm not going to do that with all of them. I'm happy to email you a PDF of all of this if you so desire. So themes within the book of Nahum are the jealousy of God. In Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 through 3, we read, God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and he will not at all acquit the wicked. God is jealous for what? That those whom he has made would worship him. He wants your hearts. He doesn't want anyone to have them in the way that he is to possess them. He is a jealous God. Also, we see the goodness and righteousness of God, as I read earlier from chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Now there is also a warning in chapter 1 to his covenant people. Behold on the mountains, this is chapter 1, verse 15, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah... Keep your appointed feast, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. God says, I'm going to deal with you like I deal with Nineveh if you don't get straight. If you don't repent. Now the reason that he can say these things is later captured in chapter 2 verse 13. In which we see this theme, judgment belongs to God and none other. It's his. And then in Nineveh chapter 3, there's just three chapters in each of these books, just nine chapters total that we'll be going through. This is the sin of Nineveh. Because of the multitude of harlotries, this is covenantal adultery. This is covenantal breaking of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. The Lord says, I am against you. And what he will do, the Lord says, is I will throw your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. The irony of that is what? They were already showing this. What does it sound like? It sounds like the month of June in America, doesn't it? That's one of the reasons why I think this topic is so relevant. Because we have become a nation, a people unashamed unashamed and so when God comes to a people desperate in their sins he wants us to see that he is watching that he keeps account 
that he is the judge. And here as it relates to Nahum, God will bring destruction against Nineveh because of their violations, not merely of natural law, what Paul talks about in Romans 1, but they've heard the gospel because Jonah was just there a hundred years ago. Just there. (laughs) He was there. But they did not hold fast to the covenant stipulations of God. So those are some of the themes we find in Nahum. Now in the book of Habakkuk, he's writing to the southern kingdom. We don't know anything about him or Nahum or really Zephaniah at all. In Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5, we see that God will judge the nations. And then Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, as I read already, we see this. That it is the just, the righteous, who shall live by faith. Faith in whom? Well, at this time, in fact, if you want a commentary on these prophets, O. Palmer Robertson's commentary is impossible to beat. He's O. Palmer Robertson, after all. I know there are some men that I greatly respect. He's one of those men. He is a phenomenal Old Testament theologian, and his commentary is fantastic. If you read it, you'll probably know a lot about what I'm going to preach on because the themes are very obvious in these prophets. It's not difficult. Sometimes it just helps to have someone who is coming alongside of you and showing you some of the things that are important. Now, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, is the place that Paul is quoting in Romans chapter 1. And he is quoting it, and he is confronting in Romans chapter 2, which I preached on this morning, the very sins of Israel. And this is what the Israelites said concerning their motherland, the home, Judah. Judah will never fall. Jerusalem shall never fall. We are not like Samaria, those idolaters. Can you hear Romans 2, 1 through 5 coming through? And so what happened... And what often happens with those who call themselves the covenant people of God is we look at the long-standing promises and the wonderful gifts that he has given and we fail to renew in our hearts the covenant that Christ has made with us and we just sort of rest on our laurels, as it were. We do not seek contrition and humility and sanctification. We say... We're the church, after all. We're Jerusalem. We are God's chosen people. We are the OPC, right? And what often happens when you are concerned with your historical identity is you fail to keep covenant, to continually reform. Now, that is not a condemnation against my own denomination. I'm just saying there are a lot of things that oftentimes in our lives we say, not me. It cannot happen to Reformation. It can. It can. We must live not by presumption, but by faith. Also, judgment is reserved for the wicked. We see this in Habakkuk 2, 12 through 14. Judgment is for the wicked. Also, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, we see that the Lord is the one who sits upon his throne. Similar themes from Nahum. And our only way out of this moral dilemma is to trust God in the midst of judgment. In fact, let's go to Habakkuk chapter 3. I'll read that one. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the glad of I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, He will make my feet like deer's feet, and He will make me walk on high hills. God will bring redemption. God can do this. So even in the midst of judgment, there is promise for deliverance, but it will not come by mere man. In the book of Zephaniah, another prophecy to the southern kingdom. Themes in Zephaniah, the biggest theme is the great day of the Lord, the coming judgment against Judah. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2, I will utterly consume everything. Everything. Why? Because they have, they have rejected the worship of the true God for images made reflecting creation. They worship the creation and not the creator. And not only that, but in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we see that judgment is both corporate and individual in its makeup. God judges individuals, but he also judges nations. Any group that has laws is called by God to write and keep laws that reflect His righteousness. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. And it is demanded by God that we who are made in His image take the Word of God and apply it to all of life. Whether we are individuals, families, churches, or civil authorities, this is the standard, and there is none other. It is this. Pride, in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, is the primary target that God's judgment has its sights on. Pride. What kind of pride? The kind of pride that says, well, what I said earlier already, not me, I'm good. Pharisaical pride. The kind of pride that denies the need for justification by faith. There is judgment of Jerusalem. We see that in Zephaniah chapter 3. Woe to her, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. How are they oppressing? They failed to call the nations to repentance. Listen, we live in a day and age where many pastors in the pulpit don't think you should be calling nations to repentance. That's the debate right now. What, what will happen to those nations if they don't? What will happen to those nations who are led by child murderers, ethnic cleansers? What will happen to them? They will sit in judgment for every life taken unless they kiss the sun. Show me another law. In fact, it brings us to the conclusion that is inescapable as it relates to our relationship with the Lord. We will rule by some standard. What standard will it be? It is not that man will not serve God. It's which God will they serve? And God holds all men, whether they are Old Testament people, New Testament people, Old Testament outside of the covenant promises of God, whoever they are, the law of God is for all men. In fact, this is the primary lesson that we find in these books. And that leads me to my second point. The lessons of these prophets. 
The law of God is for all nations. This is what O. Palmer Robinson actually writes. God's justice is marvelously impartial. He will in no wise clear the guilty, whoever it may be. He sees Nineveh and all the atrocities that is committed. We see that in Nahum chapter 1 and chapter 3. He sees also all the nations surrounding Judah to the west, the east, the south, and the north. We see that in Zephaniah 2. All of these peoples will have to give an account, both corporately and individually, of their violations of the law of God. In writing on one of the themes, Doug Wilson says, One great problem for this view, that is, that the law was only for Israel and only in the Old Testament, is that the prophets of God frequently speak to the Gentile nations in terms of fierce ethical rebuke. This happens, for example, in Jonah. It happens in Amos. And it certainly happens here. But what standard applies to a Gentile nation like Assyria? What is it? Well, there's some in the Reformed tradition that says only natural law. But natural law can tell us to some degree why it isn't good, but it can't tell us why it's good or not. It cannot tell us really very clearly whom we have actually offended. We know that there is a God who has made us, but we do not know about his Messiah in creation. And the call of Psalm 2 is to kiss the Messiah. And where do we learn of the Messiah? In the scriptures. I said it this morning. And it will be for me a recurring theme of how I understand the relationship of Christ, who is the judge now of all the earth. Christ sits and he judges. And he not only judges men as individuals atomistically, but all men are judged by the standard that is found in his word. Now there are those who have not heard his word. And their punishment may be in some way Less severe, but it will still be hell. All the earth is judged by this law. There is not one law for Nineveh and another law for Judah. It is one law. And all men will be judged. And so it is not God loves these people because they speak this language and they come from this place. And they have this historical cultural background. God judges according to his law, impartially. In fact, Paul says this later in Romans chapter 2. We haven't gotten there yet in the sermon series. Chapter 2, verse 11, For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. So there's no law for pastors and law for sheep. There is the law of God. Now there are more heinous violations of that law, but all sin is deserving of what? God's eternal wrath. And Nahum is writing to Nineveh and he's saying, you have violated the law of God. Show me where. Here. Same book. 
Same chapter, same verse, it's the same. Judah, you have betrayed the law of God. The problem with their, their sin is that it is a far more deep and pernicious betrayal because of all that God had revealed to them directly in their midst. And so covenant blessing, this is another lesson. The first lesson is that the law of God is for all nations. And so, secondly, covenant blessing and covenant cursing is for all nations. God deals with the nations through his covenant. And the way in which he deals with nations through his covenant must and does include the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if we wish to be at peace with the one who made us, we must do so through his messianic emissary, Jesus Christ. And we who have believed it, guess what our responsibility is? To go out into the nations and proclaim the goodness of God, not flee from them, as Jonah did. To not despise them because of what they may have done to us. Because blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, there's a lot of ways to take that passage. Clearly, as a church, we are at the center, the very tip of the spear of proclaiming the goodness and the life that comes in keeping covenant with God. And the only way we do that is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But after we have gone into a place and we have said, you must repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what then is the next step? Establish a society, that is, a group of people, who are committed to applying this to life, all of Christ for all of life. Do you know what happens when we do that? We don't kill babies. When we apply all of Christ to all of life, more or less we keep the law, more or less, even as we struggle with sin. We uphold the good of our neighbor. We understand why we actually have property laws. We are not content with either individuals or corporations or civil authorities stealing personal property. All of these things invite the cursing of God. Another theme that we find is that pride goes before the fall. Pride Pride is, it's the cancer that spreads to all your other organs. It's the thing that makes you almost immune to the call of the gospel to repent. It's a kind of hardness of heart that is nurtured from this disposition that whatever God has to offer, I don't need it. I'm okay. I'm fine. Thank you. I have my Redeemer already. It's the pride of Nineveh. We see that in Nahum 3, 4 through 5. And there's also the pride of Israel. I'll quote what I was alluding to earlier from Robertson's commentary. It had been thought that Jerusalem was inviolable. The covenant promise to David asserted that the dwelling place of God's name would remain forever. That's what we see, right, in the Davidic covenant. The collapse of the siege of Sennacherib outside the gate of Jerusalem in 701, and his doubly humiliating death at the hands of his sons in the house of his gods proved the point. Samaria might fall, 
but never Jerusalem. In fact, in fulfillment of the wholesale destruction of the old covenant people of God and their pride, we see in A.D. 70 the utter destruction of the city along with the temple. What is God saying? You're not waiting for a king to sit on the throne of Jerusalem. You should not be waiting for the reinstitution of the sacrifices of the temple like so many do, even today in evangelicalism. The king has come, and he is no mere man. He is a son of David, but it is not Solomon. It is not Hezekiah. It is not Josiah. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. Only God can deliver. In fact, in these three books, there is an interesting development of the theology of messianism, which is the doctrine of the hope of the Messiah. Yes, there's a doctrine of that. (laughs) And it's almost absent in the way that it was reflected prior in the prophets, that the prophets are no longer talking about a man who will sit upon the throne. It has gotten so bad in Jerusalem that there can be no king to right the circumstances. Right? There is no one who can sit upon the throne of earth apart from Christ who can bring redemption. Here's the good news for us. Christ has come. And he sits upon the throne. All that has been done already. And so even now, all that is required for nations to return to God is what? It is not merely voting. It is not merely setting and erecting human kings. It is turning even the hearts of kings and men, high and low, rich and poor, to the one who sits upon the throne of heaven and earth. That is the way we accomplish peace with God. And that leads then to the final lesson. God must do what man cannot. God must do what man cannot. God is showing in these prophets who the Lord of heaven and earth truly is. It is not Sennacherib. And God let Sennacherib rule and reign and aggravate Israel for a time. And then when God was done with Sennacherib, he humiliated him. And Israel thought, at least I'm not Sennacherib. At least I'm not like them. God is showing us who the Lord of heaven and earth is, and he's showing us that we are to look for him for salvation alone. And if this is to be done well, then we need to understand what these men are saying about God, what they're saying about us, of justice and judgment, of covenant and of salvation. What we learn as Israel is about to go into exile due to the high-handed sin of pride and spiritual arrogance is that man's only hope is that God would take the mantle of king. And that is why Zephaniah ends the way it does. As Israel is about to go into exile through the conquering Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Zephaniah looks forward to the day when the true king of heaven and earth takes his throne of the city of Zion. See how that language changes? Zephaniah 3.16, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. A new king, a new name.
And then the call. Do not be afraid. Do not grow weak. This passage. We understand now what it means, don't we? 2,000 years after his coming, Christ has taken the throne. And what have we seen since that time? Men and nations bow before the throne. Now, God is at a lot of the times and seasons. Christ is on the move. He is establishing his kingdom. And inasmuch as Christ is on the throne, we know what salvation is. It is not finding security merely in the tangible expressions of what God has done in the past. We should never say, never hear. But we should always say what? Seek salvation in the way that God has revealed it. The just shall live by faith. The beauty of times like these is that we know right now what the stakes are. We know exactly what is the way of righteousness, what is the way of wickedness, what faithfulness looks like, what compromise looks like. And this for us, dear saints, is a blessing because we have the ability now to fight for the sake of the church, to eat and feast together, And to be joyful in the presence of coming danger because Christ is on the throne. May this be our hope. Let's pray.